Hey, this is Alan. So we're still on production break, but here's one of our favorite episodes we've ever produced. It first aired in December of 2019, but the cross-border project we talk about in the episode is still in the works. Enjoy, and by the way, if you have a cross-border story you want to share with us, call 619-452-0228 and leave a voicemail. Tell us who you are, where you live, and a little bit about how the border has impacted your life. Thank you. The hills bleed trash. At least that's what it looks like from Jorge Ibáñez's nursery. Standing on Jorge's plant-filled perch on a hillside of Los Laureles Canyon in Tijuana, there is a clear view of about half a dozen illegal dump sites. People who live on the mesas above have for decades dumped trash into the canyon below. In the beginning, Los Laureles was a slum where waves of migrants, unable to cross to the U.S., have taken up shelter in shoddy shacks they hastily built for themselves. Those dumping the trash from above care little about those below who are forced to live in it. Over the years, the slum has grown into a recognized Tijuana neighborhood, with water pipes and electricity lines connecting it to the city that once pretended it didn't exist. There's even trash pickup now, unreliable, but it's there. Nicer houses, taco shops, and small businesses like Jorge's have popped up here too. Adela Bonilla runs a piñata and craft shop near the bottom of the canyon. And yet, no matter how much the neighborhood grows and gets better, the flow of rainbow-colored trash keeps coming. Plastic bottles and bags cascading down the hillsides and flowing through the center of town. Other people's junk cutting deep gullies into the eroding earth beneath it. When it rains, the trash is swept up in a swelling stream that runs right through the middle of Los Laureles Canyon. The flow pushes through the neighborhood, then under the six-lane highway leading from Tijuana to Ensenada. From there, it cuts through a culvert running underneath the international border fence. Once the trash and sediment-filled water hits the U.S., it's in a wildlife reserve. The state of California spends $1.8 million annually on a system that keeps that trash and dirt from slipping too far into the park. They use small ponds to catch the sediment, and a fence stretched across the ponds catches the plastics. The Tijuana River Research Reserve, the agency that takes care of the park, says the system has stopped approximately 2 million pounds of debris from entering the environmentally sensitive estuary. But the trash just keeps coming and coming, and perpetually managing the pricey problem instead of actually solving the problem seems like the forever plan. That is, unless Stephen Wright and Waylon Matson's idea gets funded. The environmentalists want to use repurposed trash from the canyon to build retaining walls and other structures in Los Laureles 
that would prevent the trash and dirt from reaching the U.S. in the first place. The tire retaining wall is a really good example of the economics behind it, right? So the, this tire wall has, uh, I believe it's 450 or 500 scrap tires in it and about 67 cubic yards of sediment. And we built it for 3,500 true cost. That's including Whalen and Mine's time. If that same quantity of material had crossed into the sediment ponds, it would have been 9,500 to clean up. Right? So therein lies the relatively simple math. It's, it's, you know, it's the border. Yeah. So why spend dollars if you could spend pistols? That's yeah. a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Alan Liliental, and you're listening to Only Here, a KPBS podcast about the unexplored subcultures, creativity, and struggles at the U.S.-Mexico border. Today, a story about trash and dirt flowing from one side of the border to the other, and two guys' plan to stop it. More after the break. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. When it rains, ginormous flows of raw sewage from Tijuana often overwhelm the sewer system and end up flushing through the canyons in Tijuana Estuary, eventually dumping into the Pacific Ocean, washing up on beaches in San Diego. Mexican officials say heavy rains caused the collapse of a major sewer line. This is the second major. More than 14 million gallons of sewage. 8 million gallons of flow. 130 million. More than 200 million. More than 120 million. The tsunami of raw sewage. It's a huge problem, but it's not the problem Stephen Wright and Waylon Matson are trying to solve. The two are laser-focused on solving something different but intertwined the cross-border flow of trash and sediment from Los Laureles Canyon. Stephen and Waylon's old van kicks up billows of dust as we drive up a steep dirt road in Borderfield State Park, a park at the southwesternmost tip of the United States. We're at the place where the border fence dives into the ocean. And once we get to the top of the hill, Stephen points out the views of Los Laureles Canyon on the south side of the fence and the sediment ponds on the north side. We have a, a really 
good 180 view of this situation here, which I would say unfortunately is not unique to our region in that we have a protected conservation area uh, sort of surrounded on the periphery by historically ignored communities. The Mexican side is densely populated and bustling, filled with people and cars. In stark contrast, the American side is empty, except for a few birds and one border patrol agent sitting in a truck parked below. Stephen and Waylon are both tan and leathery from working out in the sun. Their hands are calloused. They look like they work in construction, but sound like Southern California surfers. They love being outside. While we drive, Waylon constantly scans the horizon, looking for American kestrels, small falcons that call the park home. There's one right there. Kestrel? Yeah. <laughs> Waylon named his baby daughter Kestrel. That's how much he loves the birds. Stephen and Waylon have spent a lot of time in Tijuana, tromping around Los Laureles Canyon. The neighborhood's residents are now close friends. And there are some things they can't unsee after their time here. The dead pig floating through the middle of the neighborhood, so bloated the little guy looked like he was about to explode. The kids playing next to water so green it looks like it's glowing. Hypodermic needles and other bio-waste washing through the neighborhood. The migrants losing their homes and all of their belongings when it rains because the hillsides cave in. They finally, finally think they've pinpointed a real lasting solution. But it took them some time to get here. Stephen and Waylon met on a rugby pitch at college in Riverside, California. They were immediately struck by their similarities. Yeah, we're star brothers, for sure. Um, it's pretty cool. Not everybody can say that they uh, do, you know, work with one of their closest lifelong friends, you know. Born on the exact same day, the exact same year, thousands of miles apart, the two grew up chasing critters and running through forests. Hardcore nature boys right from the start. Both knew early on that they wanted to save the world. They were early environmentalists. And the border region hit Stephen and Waylon's radar early, too. Both took family trips to Mexico when they were young. And Stephen's first ever trip south with his family pressed a firm imprint on his brain. It was one he could never shake. My dad's a geography teacher. They challenged me that if I memorized all the state capitals, they'd give me 40 bucks to go buy a... Uh, a whip and some cowboy boots down in Tijuana. And, uh, you know, I think it was a five, five, maybe six. And uh, so, yeah, so I memorized them. I got it. Uh, I got the money. We went down. And that was really the first time I'd ever seen, like, just crushing po poverty. There was a lot of folks on the street. And, uh, I'd never really seen anything like that. I'd seen a lot of kids my age that were on the street. And uh, so, long story short, I gave all my money away. And then my, my parents thought that was good. They bought me the whip and the boots anyways. Those two things, their love of nature and the border, would end up shaping the rest of Stephen and Waylon's lives. They just didn't know it yet. The two became close friends in college, but went separate ways after graduating. Almost a year went by, and then Waylon called up Stephen on a whim. They got to talking and found out they were both thinking about starting environmental nonprofits. They met up at a coffee shop with some colored pencils, 
drew up a logo and wrote down the four pillars of their future nonprofit: shelter, self-reliance, sustainability, and community. And that was the start of their new thing, a nonprofit they called Four Walls International. At first, they focused on building single-family homes for people in need in places like Mexico and Colombia, teaching themselves and their volunteers how to turn trash into sustainable building materials. It's a hell of a thing to unite a whole community and sweat and bleed together and work together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've learned, you know, is that well, when, when you're doing that together for a project that potentially only is benefiting one family, that it can kind of lead to splintering within those groups or those community groups or the community. That right there, the splintering some other projects were causing in the communities in which they were building, it led to a big pivot. They started focusing on public instead of private projects, and they really started involving the community through the entire process, from identifying the need to planning the design and then actually helping build the thing. They built a few small public parks, one right near the border fence in Borderfield State Park. For that project, they used about 4,000 plastic bottles filled with trash they collected from the sediment basins, plus 250 old rubber tires. The repurposed trash is covered in plaster that makes it indistinguishable from more traditional building materials. It used to be a really foreboding place. Uh, there was two black chain link fences here that pretty much covered everything out Uh, and that Borderfield State Park sign was in front and it was just a simple the normal sign and when we were working there I mean you can't you can't imagine how many people would come up and just turn around because they thought that the place was closed right and we saw a lot of like cross-country trips or like north-south trips that they're they were planning to end here and they just turned around because they thought that it was closed Uh, so we kind of got charged with the task of opening this up and we took the fences down and we built a bunch of park infrastructure and signage here. And on the other side of the border, in Los Laureles Canyon, they built some small public projects too, like an outdoor basketball court surrounded by murals. They also built a small workshop space that some of the women in the neighborhood could use to make crafts and other things to sell. Really, the the biggest key to long-term sustainability of these projects is that there's a high degree of ownership by the community. You know, our our golden rule is don't do anything about me without me. And the second golden rule is under promise over perform. Because a lot of, especially when you work in in some of these communities, you can't, I mean, they they get made promises all day, every day, all the time. Politicians, NGO groups, academic, whatever, they promises all the time and and there's not always the follow through. So, um, so yeah, those those are our our important, rules and is you know as far as the you know our, our building techniques and our strategy and everything we do is is sustainable but for it to really be sustainable it's got to be you know the community making the decisions and it financially needs to be sustainable which has led us to that final pivot those community projects Stephen and Waylon were doing were amazing but they were small and weren't leading to any large-scale long-term change They were using repurposed trash to build nice public places, but then new trash and dirt just started piling up all around these spots. It was frustrating. So they hit the pause button. And now, 
they've turned their attention to the thing they think the people of Los Laureles and the trash problem need most, money. Like we could have been going, we could go at the rate we've been going for the next hundred years and not really even make a dent. We knew that it has to go, it has to go way up a level and, and several levels and very quickly. More on that when we come back. Steven and Waylon leave Borderfield State Park and drive through the international border crossing. Today, there's a line of vehicles snaking their way into Mexico. So it takes about 20 minutes to make our way through the cameras and speed bumps and the other intimidating infrastructure that makes up the crossing. Everybody's just jamming. You know, the, border, the borderline really brings out the best in Said the river to the seeker, fear not which way I turn. I'm headed to the same destination. After navigating through downtown Tijuana traffic. You want to get there from here? Yeah, this is the main drag, so I take a left yeah, on Londres. All the way to Londres and take a left. They drive back toward the border, down a steep, bumpy road into Los Laureles Canyon. Trash is everywhere. But so are examples of people using the trash in creative ways. Stacks of old rubber tires are common here, mostly serving as retaining walls to stem the erosion. We drive by a set of tires painted hot pink and serving as a decorative fence in the front yard of a small house. Across the stream from the pink fence, in the center of the canyon, a retaining wall made of discarded tires is literally holding up a triangle-shaped patch of land underneath a shack that looks like it'll be wiped out once the rainy season begins. You'll see there's a lot of, you know, retaining walls built with tires and stuff. Is, but there's a couple things that could be done engineering-wise to make them a little more secure and, and uh, to make them really advantageous and not necessarily dangerous. Some of them can be kind of dangerous. We've been down here like in the winter and, and walls have collapsed and like crushed houses with people sleeping in them and stuff like that. Our first stop is the shop where Adela Bonilla makes piñatas and other goods, many from recyclables she finds in the canyon. This is Casa de Botellas. This is Adela. Adela, this is... Adela, this is... This is... This is... This is... Adela wears an apron and a big smile. She stands below huge piñatas made in the shape of children's cartoon characters, like Pikachu and Mario. So th this is built, there's about 2,000 of these uh, bottle bricks. These are just soda bottles stuffed with disposable plastics and foam. A few years back, 
Stephen and Waylon partnered with Adela and other women who live in the canyon to build a shop out of glass and plastic bottles stuffed with trash. The building is beautiful, and the only hint that it's made of trash are the colored glass bottles in the ceiling they purposely left exposed. You can see the end of one right here. Yeah, there's a couple of models. There you go. So um, we built it with about 13 women over the course of about a month, and uh, I think it was done with like 3,500 uh, bucks. There's more for us to see deeper into the canyon, so we say goodbye. All right, we gotta get going, guys. Okay. And pile back into the van. All right, All right. Stephen and Waylon want to show me and only here producers Kinsey Moreland and Emily Jankowski the three areas where they want to build structures to stop the flow of trash and dirt. They call the areas hot spots and hard points. So here you're this is where this is one of those hard points. And you just, you see there's clandestine dump sites that pretty much everywhere. This right here, is a, this will become a whole mound of uh, trash bags for a trash pickup. And so what happens is, is like, as you can tell, there's plenty that's left behind. And, you know, these are all bottles that are, would float across. The spot is a total mess. A tunnel the city installed sped up the water flow, which made the erosion here worse. A few old chairs sit at the center of what's become a large pile of plastic bottles, bags, and other junk. To us, the situation feels completely overwhelming. But Stephen and Waylon see opportunity. One man's trash is another man's treasure, as they say. In this case, they see building materials. Uh, bottle bricks is what you're seeing. They just haven't been processed yet. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. The guys want to transform the trash-bleeding, eroding hillsides of Los Laureles into beautiful terrace landscapes. Terraces built from the very trash currently clogging it up. And they want to pay the people who live in Los Laureles, many of them new migrants who got stuck in Tijuana as they tried to cross the border, to do the work of collecting glass and plastic bottles and stuffing them with trash from the canyon. So. I look at what I see and I just think it's hopeless, but you guys don't think. Oh, it's not hopeless, man. I mean, <laughs> there's, like I said, there's tens if not hundreds of thousands of people that would work their ass off to, to, to clean up the watershed. You just need the right opportunities. I mean, as long as we're all like, gonna, you know, implicitly uphold this system, then we can all agree that opportunity and upward mobility are good things, right? So. We need to provide everything. Is just it's like the same problem ever. It's access, and our, you know, and if so we, you look at this and you see jobs. It's uh, littered with opportunity. Yeah, that's our tagline. Yeah. The world is littered with opportunity, because this this shit is everywhere, and we can transform it relatively simply and relatively cheaply. A lot cheaper than digging it out later retroactively. That's for sure. Stephen and Waylon think that once word gets out about trash equaling money a lot of the illegal dumping problems will be resolved. Trash will be seen as more of a commodity. So you very rarely find an aluminum can in the river because it has value. You know, the only naysayer I think I've ever heard was, what are you going to do when they run out of trash? <laughs> I'm like, well, they're not just pack up and move on somewhere else where they haven't finished their trash situation yet. <laughs> yeah, the only other 
kind of naysay comment I think I've ever heard would be, uh, what are you going to do when someone thinks they can do it better than you and wants to start a competitive business? Um, that's what I'm going to say. Absolutely. Great. That's awesome. Let's all compete for this stuff. Let's uh, overfish it and mine the crap out of it, just like we're good at. And uh, yeah, by all means, compete over it. You know, drive the price of it down, make it more obtainable, and let's just cut the stuff off. When Stephen and Waylon look at the sediment ponds back on the other side of the border at Borderfield State Park, they see so many ways to save tons of money it seems ridiculous. Because all that trash and dirt that flows from Mexico to the U.S., every year the state pays to get it scooped up, sifted, and then piled up south of the pond. The price tag for that process is almost $2 million a year. Stephen and Waylon say they can spend a fraction of that money to pay people in Los Laureles to help build structures in the canyon and eventually other canyons in Tijuana. They say the projects could stop most of the trash and sediment from ever getting to the U.S. There's a lot of money spent to clean this up downstream, so kind of working backwards, backwards from that, uh, we, you know, we can figure out a value uh, to this stuff. The idea is straightforward enough but the execution is tricky. Are right, you guys ready? Yeah. <laughs> ready for what? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I think, I think I just really enjoy being at the tip of the spear <laughs> with innovation. I think that's, that's really what's gonna push, I think, society and humanity into, the, into this next generation. Steven and Waylon drive up a steep, narrow dirt road that looks precarious at best. The hillside it snakes up on is eroding, and it looks like our van could be the thing that washes away the road for good. We're heading to Jorge Ibanez's native plant nursery. This is the very first project we ever built in Tijuana. It's with this native plant nursery, the Las Hormiguitas. So this, like I said, this is built with about 500 scrap tires. Same thing you saw on that, that retaining wall here. Um, and then it's got earth, it's packed out with adobe mud and it's got an earthen plaster on it. It's made with baba de nopal, which is like cactus juice that we fermented. And then I built this with about the same size group, about 13 uh, people, mostly ladies. And then um, built this originally as an office space and it has sort of uh, become like the, the catch-all shed for all the work that happens here. Stephen and Waylon want Jorge and others here to help stem erosion by filling the terraces they'll build with the native plants he grows. A lot of these native plants help a lot with erosion because they they have strong roots because they have to because they only grow with the rain so. This is what the plant native. 
From the nursery, we keep driving into the canyon, where we see another project the guys helped build. This is a little park project we oh, did I up there. I put a little there. fence up. Mm -hmm. We can go see that later, too. What is, what's in there? It's like a basketball court. Too. This was the last brick and mortar we did in TJ before we decided that we weren't going to build anything until we knew we could be here for several years and not stop. Is it basketball court? Yeah, it's, oh, a, it's a like a multi-court. We drive even deeper into the canyon and Stephen and Waylon show us two more hot spots where they envision focusing most of their efforts. The last spot is near a church that serves as a shelter for homeless migrants, many of them from Haiti and Central America. Basically, we're going to a place where this, this has been a migrant shelter for more than 20, 25 years. Pastor Gustavo has seen it all. Um, you know, there's, it's, the little regions become known as Little Haiti because of the, a lot of the Haitian influx of immigrants went there. And now that we're starting to see that sort of diaspora out and you're getting a lot of the Central American uh, and really people from all over the world are showing up uh, at the pastor's door. And that kind of ebbs and flows with the quantity of tents in there. And so I've been in there and there's just tents jammed up together inside of there. And uh, there's a lot of families, a lot of kids. The smell here is very intense thanks to a nearby farm and the extremely polluted waterway. But yeah, that's some funky green right there. Anyways, this is another one of the hot spots. And um, again, there's a lot of, of migrant families that come here and everybody's kind of sort of coming through and getting settled and cycling out. And it's just a, just a lot of need here. And there's definitely a lot of people that would be willing to work really hard. Yeah. Stephen and Waylon see the homeless migrants as the perfect workforce. They envision being able to pay them to walk through the canyon and pick up bottles. If they stuff the bottles with trash, they'll get more money for them. Then they'll use the bottles as bricks in their erosion control projects. So we're going to be creating lots of jobs for, you know, a lot of people that call this place home, but there's also an opportunity to create jobs for migrants that are, you know, being forced to await their asylum claims on this side of the border. So now, they just need the money. But getting money from government agencies and grantors in the U.S. and spending it on projects in Mexico, that's where things get difficult. Stephen and Waylon, though, they think they found a way to get the money flowing from north of the border to south. Uh, well, the Border Impact Bond is a way to um, create jobs and economic incentives upstream in Tijuana uh, to reduce government spending downstream in California while improving uh, environmental and public health on both sides of the line. That's the elevator pitch for the social impact bond they've dreamed up. A social impact bond is basically a contract with a government agency. That agency then pays for better social outcomes in certain areas in need and passes on part of the savings to investors who bought into the bond. Stephen and Waylon have identified a few government agencies that would benefit and save money from a contract like this. And for investors who buy into the idea, the bond is a way to make some money and pay for something that's good for the environment at the same time. They can feel warm and fuzzy about how they're using their money. Not everyone is able to fully understand the plan, though. It confuses a lot of people. 
But that's why Stephen and Waylon take potential investors and reps from government agencies on tours of Borderfield State Park and Los Laureles Canyon, just like the one we're on today. Once people see the situation on the ground with their own eyes, the idea starts making a lot more sense. And, you know, Steve and I have been doing this for a long time. And about four years ago, we were introduced to these market-based approaches to conservation, which it, with impact bonds being one of them. And we realized right then and there that it's the only way we can scale our work up is by, is by front-loading private impact investment that, that there's, you know, there's billions of dollars in the ESG market, which is uh, environment, um, sustainability, and governance, which is what, you know, governments around the world, uh, companies are all refocusing on in their investments. You know, people don't want to invest in the oil anymore, right? And so we, we want to be able to capitalize on that to be able to front load uh, the cost of these interventions with the idea of then saying repayment would be structured around our performance. So if, if we are very successful, we would see a higher return rate to, our, to the investment. Stephen and Waylon just got 70K from a federal border program run by the United States Environmental Protection Agency. That money will help fund the planning stage of the project. Soon, they'll begin holding workshops with people in Los Laureles and coming up with designs. But the last piece of the puzzle has yet to fall in place. They still need a government agency to step up and sign on to the border bond. They say there's too much at stake and are confident it will happen. What, what political doesn't want that handshake and photo at the end of it? This is a bipartisan solution. You have serious, measurable social and environmental benefits, right, for the left. And then you have a fiscally responsible reduction in government spending to the right. And so those things together, I mean, this, the, conceptually, it's, it's a very bipartisan solution to these problems. So since this episode first aired last December, the Four Walls guys have made a lot of significant progress. One big step has been partnering with another San Diego nonprofit and getting ready to install a trash boom in Los Laureles Canyon in Tijuana this fall. Once the boom is up, they'll be closely monitoring and studying what they catch and identifying ways in which the materials they're collecting can be reused. For more information about the project, check out the Four Walls website at the number four walls written out intl.org. Only Here is a KPBS podcast hosted by me, Alan Lilienthal. It was written and produced by Kinsey Moreland. Emily Jankowski is the director of sound design. Lisa Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is the director of programming. KPBS podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. Go to kpbs.org to make a donation or become a member today. Thank you.